There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week, we wrapped up our Health and Wealth mini-series. We interviewed Jen Anderson on overcoming perfectionism. And we also had a great webinar on health and wealth on Thursday. And that's why we did the health and wealth mini-series was to lead up to that webinar. Right on. So if anybody's interested in viewing that webinar, it is available for download. We had Dr. Kevin Fonseca with Alberta Health Services talk with us about all things COVID, something I'm getting sick and tired of talking about, really. Well, it feels like we might be getting nearer the end, so that's a good thing. Yeah, it sounds good. And we also did a little presentation during that on how to remove stress from your investment life because we are investment advisors and that's what we talk about, right? Exactly. So we've had a lot of questions over the years about the topic we're going to discuss today. And usually these topics come up during times of major crises. So things like the global financial crisis. Remember that one, Greg? Yeah, I vaguely remember it. (laughs) Vaguely remember the time period where the market went down 50%. Exactly. And the topic today is based on how safe is my money? So what protections do we have in place in case of financial failure? And I know this sounds far-fetched, but during that global financial crisis or global credit crisis, depending on what you want to call it, It was a reasonable question because there were very large financial institutions, specifically in the U.S., that were failing. Companies like, you might have heard of these ones, Greg, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Washington Mutual, and many more, actually, but we'll just stop it there. But So today we're going to talk about Canada, though, and the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, because we had questions back then. We were working at another firm, and I remember getting calls in about, what happens if the bank that you're working at fails? What happens to my money? That's a real concern for sure. So we're going to talk about the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation. And if we have time, we're also going to get into the difference between a fiduciary and an advisor versus an advisor. So that's ER versus OR. And if we don't get to cover that, we will absolutely cover it in a future episode because it's pretty critical. But let's start off with this little thing called the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. And from now on, I'm going to call it CIPF, just because it's easier and faster. Saves time. It does. So the CIPF is a not-for-profit insurance program that was established by securities regulators across Canada. What it is, it's, it's really a fund that's designed to protect investors from the bankruptcy of an individual investment firm. So in overview, basically accounts are covered for up to $1 million in shortfalls. We'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. But shortfalls in an account with securities, commodity and futures contracts, segregated insurance funds, or cash. And the shortfall is basically the difference between the market value of the account and what the insolvent company can return to the customer. So because investment firms rarely become insolvent, the possibility exists and the CIPF exists to protect investment accounts of the customers. But obviously it happens, otherwise this form of insurance wouldn't be in place. That's right. And it has happened, I believe... 
something like 41 times, something like that, since the inception of the CIPF. And so it's not that it doesn't happen, but they tend to be smaller investment firms. But anyway, let's talk about it. The Canadian Investor Protection Fund only protects investors for losses that result from the insolvency of the investment firm. It doesn't protect investors from losses occurring for other reasons. And we're going to discuss what some of those reasons are in a few minutes. So the CIPF insurance is essentially purchased by member firms through the fund. And as long as you have an investment account with a member firm, you don't need to purchase anything, no additional insurance yourself. You benefit from the insurance at no charge. And so all of these firms, they always say on their websites, they've, there's the CIPF logo somewhere on the website indicating that it's part of the program. That's right. And if anyone listening is not sure, they should certainly check with their advisor to make sure that their member firm is a member of CIPF. Now, the CIPF is sometimes confused with the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation, or CDIC, which was a corporation that was established by the Canadian federal government back in 67, that's 1967, to insure consumer banking deposits. So we're going to talk about the CDIC a little bit later. The CIPF is a little bit more generous than the CDIC in the ways that the deposits are insured up to a million dollars Canadian in shortfalls in accounts, as opposed to $100,000 with the CDIC. So let's talk about CIPF. First of all, who qualifies? So there are a couple of criteria. First of all, you have to have an account with a member firm, and that's disclosed on the records of the firm. So again, check with your firm to make sure they're a member of CIPF. The member firm has to have become insolvent. That's in order for the protection to kick in. That's right. You don't want to deposit your money with a member firm that's insolvent. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Exactly. The firm, as a result of its insolvency, has failed to return or account for property it was holding on your behalf on the insolvency date. And you have to be considered eligible for coverage or, in the reverse, not considered ineligible. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. That's very confusing. It is. You have to be eligible by not being ineligible. Exactly right. Okay, got it. And also, just of interest, there's no requirement that you live or be a citizen of Canada. So as long as you have an account with a member firm in Canada, you don't need to be a resident. So who doesn't qualify for CIPF protection? Well, first of all, anyone, this may make sense, anyone who actually has materially contributed to the insolvency of the member firm would not be eligible for protection under CIPF. That makes sense. Yeah. Directors and general partners of the member firm are not eligible. And some shareholders and limited partners with 5% or more of the member firm. And IROC, our self-regulatory organization that looks after investment dealers, other member firms or firms registered with other security regulators. So for the most part, anyone listening, if you're an individual like us that has an account with a member firm, you're eligible for CIPF coverage. So what does it cover? Well, basically what CIPF covers is missing property. So this is property. And when we talk about property, we're talking about investments like individual stocks, mutual funds, things like that. So missing property is property held by a member firm on your behalf that is not returned to you following the firm's insolvency. Let's break that down. So somebody's deposited 100 shares of a company into their trading account and your member firm goes insolvent. So you're just trying to recoup that 100 shares or whatever it is. Exactly. That's right. And again, as I mentioned, so missing property could include cash. It could include securities, futures contracts, or segregated insurance funds. Now, what it doesn't cover 
are losses resulting from any of these following items. A drop in the value of your investments for any reason. So for instance, if you bought shares of a company at $50 and the shares went down to $20, the CIPF is not going to compensate you for that loss. So if you bought GameStop at $483 a share and it traded down to $140 a share, it doesn't qualify. Exactly. That was just a terrible trade. That's right. (laughs) And Colin, are we recommending people buy GameStop shares? Well, no, never. I mean, (laughs) I don't think we have to get into that one. We've spent a lot of time talking about GameStop over the last few weeks. But if somebody's listening out there that actually owns it, I think we'd recommend that they just sell it. Exactly. Now, here's some other things that CIPF doesn't cover. And it's one of the reasons why we were planning to talk a little bit about the role of a fiduciary as we go on. CIPF does not cover investments that weren't suitable for you in the first place. It doesn't cover fraudulent or other misrepresentations that were made or misleading information that was given to you, important information that wasn't disclosed, or generally poor investment advice. It also does not cover the insolvency or default of a company that issued your security. So if you own shares of company XYZ and XYZ goes bankrupt, there's no coverage, obviously, by CIPF for that. So I'd be like, Enron or something like that. That's right. You bought shares and the company ceased to exist. Exactly. So I guess we can't actually recommend Enron to any of the listeners. No, we can't. And we won't. (laughs) The other thing that's not covered, which is sort of self-explanatory, is any securities that are held directly by the client. So meaning if you've received a share certificate or you've got a share certificate sitting in a safety deposit box, obviously that's not covered under CIPF because the firm isn't holding that property for you. But again, the key thing is that the CIPF doesn't guarantee the value of any particular investment you hold. So as I mentioned, oh, here's the number I was looking for. And back in 1969, when CIPF was created, since then, it's helped investors following the failure of about 21 investment dealers. And it's paid out about $47 million for claims and related expenses, which when it comes right down to it is not a big number. And I think it just speaks to how well our industry is actually regulated and managed. Well, these are doomsday scenarios. This is like in the global credit crisis, getting calls. Is that large Canadian bank that you work at going to fail? Which the likelihood of that is, I can't say zero, but it's probably close to zero. Our banks are some of the most highly regulated in the world, I think. And I think that gives a lot of comfort to people, even though during the global financial crisis, it wasn't obvious that every bank was going to survive. Well, bank stocks went down about 60% in value during that period. Everybody's sort of forgotten about that, Greg. Exactly. So in this case, let's use that as an example. You put money into, it doesn't matter which Canadian bank, and it went down 60%. CIPF does not cover for market movement. Exactly. It'll only cover you if that bank failed. So let's talk a little bit about the CIPF coverage, because I think there's a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding, both among well, probably among advisors, among investors, with regards to how the losses are allocated. So when we say, well, gee, these accounts are guaranteed, they're insured for up to a million dollars, it doesn't mean that if you had $2 million in your account, then you're only getting a million dollars back. So what the CIPF does is it basically covers the shortfall up to a million dollars. So I'm going to talk about some numbers and work with me here. But let's just do a couple of scenarios to let people know how it works. So let's say if you add up all of the investments that a firm has for its clients, let's say the value of all those investments are $2 billion. Okay, and that's called the client net equity. So all of the value of the client's accounts and investments, $2 billion. 
Then there's something called the customer pool. And the customer pool is all of the money that's available or all of the money and securities that's available to return to clients in the case of an insolvency. So these are all the securities held in each client's names. That's right. So they put together all of those securities, they pool them all together, and they also add up any cash or securities that the firm itself holds. And so they add up all of those total numbers. This would be the trustee or the receiver that would be doing this, of course, with the CIPF. And so that becomes the customer pool. So that's the money that's actually available to return to customers. So you've got the client net equity, all of the value of the client's accounts, $2 billion. Let's say, and then you've got the customer pool. So the trustee and the CIPF are going to determine whether or not the net equity is larger than the customer pool or less than the customer pool. Now, if it's less than the customer pool, it means that the insolvent firm actually has enough to return all of the customers their money that they're entitled to. And so there's no losses. And so there's no need for insurance. But the likelihood is that the company, if it went insolvent, doesn't have enough. That's right. So if there's a shortfall, meaning that if the net equity belonging to the clients is actually higher or larger than the customer pool, then there's going to be a shortfall. So in our example, let's say the net equity owing to the clients is $2 billion and the customer pool is $1.9 billion. So we're $100 million short. And what's that in percentage? $100 million is 5% of the $2 billion of net equity for the clients. Okay, so there's a 5% shortfall. So let's take an example of a client who has $2 million of net equity. So Pretty good. Portfolio is worth $2 million. The loss that's allocated to them is 5% of that, or $100,000. And the CIPF coverage is a $1 million. And so since the CIPF coverage is more than the loss that's allocated to the client, there's no loss to the customer. They'll get all of their investments, all of their money back. That's the insurance portion. The $100,000 gets returned to them by the CIPF. They become whole. That's right. They would get their $1.9 million of investments and they would get $100,000 from CIPF. Well, let's look at a bigger example. Though. So let's take a bigger example where a client, a lucky client, through hard work and good savings and investments, has a net equity of $20 million. So the loss allocated to that client would be 5% of $20 million or $1 million. Because the CIPF coverage is $1 million, there would be no loss to the customer in that case either. Same example. They just pay the million dollars directly to the client. That's right. So it just goes to show that when people say, oh, well, okay, if the firm goes insolvent, I'm only going to get a million dollars, even though I've got a $20 million account. That's not at all how it works. And so again, we have to just remember that the insurance, the CIPF insurance covers the shortfall, not the total account value. I know that this is kind of a confusing topic for people. So let's just say if if there's somebody listening that has more questions about how that works, just give us a call. We can walk you through it. Absolutely. Okay. So what about the other insurance program, the one that more people probably have heard of, and that's the CDIC or Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. So what is CDIC? Well, the CDIC is a nonprofit crown corporation that was launched in 1967. So it's funded by premiums paid by the member financial institutions, which of course are all the major banks, as well as some of the smaller institutions and federally regulated credit unions, things like that. And what the CDIC insures are your deposits in the event of a bank's collapse. And thanks to the oversight of, of course, the way, as I mentioned, how well regulated our banks are and the CDIC coverage, no Canadian has lost even a single dollar 
due to the closure of a bank since the inception of the CDIC. That's pretty good. Not bad. So what does it cover? Well, in the event your financial institution goes bankrupt, at least $100,000 of the money you hold, and again, here we're going to talk about shortfalls as well. It covers up to $100,000 of shortfalls that you hold in deposits such as checking accounts, savings accounts, GICs, that kind of thing. And the important thing is, so the limit is $100,000 of shortfalls, but you can have deposits in a bunch of different categories. So for example, you can have deposits that are just held in your name alone. They would be covered up to that $100,000 limit. Per institution. Per institution, exactly. So in this example, if you had $200,000 and 100000 was at one bank and 100000 was at another bank, and for whatever reason, both of them failed, you're covered for both tranches. Exactly right. You can have also deposits that are held in more than one name. If you have a joint checking or savings account with your spouse, then that's considered separately from the deposits that you have in your own name. Now, deposits in an RRSP counts again separately. Deposits in a tax-free savings account, deposits in a RIF, a registered retirement income fund. But it's just the cash and term deposits in those accounts, is it? That is correct. Because the other things would fall under the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. That's right. So if you held, for example, if you held a bank-owned GIC in your investment fund with an investment firm, then you would get coverage for both the GIC through the bank that issued it, and you would have the CIPF coverage in case your own firm ran into trouble. Leveraged insurance. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Deposits held in a trust are again separate, and deposits held for paying taxes on mortgage properties is separate. So there's really seven different categories, so you could have up to $700,000 per institution of coverage. When we've had some extreme examples over the years when people have been worried about things. I remember this one person, they had a million dollars. They wanted term deposits. They wanted to make sure their CDIC insurance covered them. So what did they do? They bought 10 different GICs from 10 different providers and held them all under the same account, which you can do. And in their essence, you have 10 $100,000 tranches of CDIC insurance plus the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Exactly. And that's one of the things that people might do is if they're particularly concerned that a bank might run into trouble, then they spread their money around. And as you say, each institution has its own CDIC coverage. Let's talk about that for a minute. If you were worried that a bank was going to run into trouble, would you actually put your money into a term deposit from that bank? No, probably not. (laughs) Like, wouldn't you just choose another alternative? That's right. And it does happen from time to time. And the actual insolvency of a bank is relatively rare, but there are times when it can become concerning. And then, of course, you do feel a lot more comfortable at that point if your money is spread around. Yeah, like if Joe's bank is offering you 10% rates on their term deposits. Exactly. But they're not a chartered bank. (laughs) You probably don't want to give them your money. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Or or Acme, Acme Financial. (laughs) Okay, so again, like the CIPF, we talked about CDIC covers shortfalls as opposed to total value. So in the unlikely event of a bank failure, the insolvency trustee would look at all the funds owed to depositors compare it to all the funds available for distribution and would cover the shortfall up to that $100,000 limit. So listen, we've talked about how the money is protected at both banks and investment firms, but let's also talk about how investors are protected in terms of the investments recommended for their portfolios or selected for their portfolios by a portfolio manager. And this is where the concept of a fiduciary comes in. 
Yeah, fiduciary. What is a fiduciary? Well, according to the definition on the World Wide Web. Wait a sec, is that the information superhighway? Yes, the interweb. A fiduciary duty is a commitment to act in the best interests of another person or entity. Broadly speaking, a fiduciary duty is a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. That is, the fiduciary must act only in the best interests of a client or beneficiary, and the fiduciary must act diligently in those interests. Which seems reasonable. Well, of course. I mean, so when people invest their money with an investment firm, I think they expect that the person they're dealing with is actually a fiduciary. But in many cases, that's not true. Exactly. So I can say with all honesty and integrity that we are registered as fiduciaries. We're registered as portfolio managers with our securities commissions and regulators. But there's a huge difference between what an investment advisor is and a portfolio manager in regards to fiduciary duty. So the other thing too, and I have this one person I always talk to who points out if advisor is spelt E-R versus O-R, one indicates fiduciary duty and one does not. One actually indicates that you're just a salesperson. So that's- Interesting. That is interesting. And whenever he has that debate with me, I always just remind him, well, it doesn't really matter because we're portfolio managers, so we have fiduciary duty. (laughs) Yes. So however you want to spell it. But how it works is an investment advisor is regulated. They're registered with the securities commissions and regulators. But when they do a trade- the trade of that security has to fall within a framework that is based on the client's overall risk levels and investment objectives, and the trades proposed need to be in line with what the client's needs are. And they have to discuss that trade with the client. Each trade has to be discussed at length to make sure that the client understands what they're purchasing. But there's no stated fiduciary duty in that arrangement. No, and in the end, it's the client who does make the decision of whether or not to buy or not buy that security. So to me, this is kind of like when I take my car in for its annual checkup and I get a call from the service manager recommending all kinds of service to be done to my vehicle. I don't really know what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. I just assume that they're telling me what I need to do. And yet they're not fiduciaries by any means. They're not. And they always seem to get me for a very high service bill. Exactly. This is way different than a portfolio manager. As a portfolio manager, we're licensed through the same regulators, but with a much higher standard. And we're granted the ability to trade securities for clients without having to discuss each trade in advance. Exactly. So to accomplish this, we complete an investment policy statement with each client that's specific to each client. And it states the same risk levels and investment objectives, but it also describes asset class ranges and specific types of securities that are appropriate for each client. There is a stated fiduciary duty when dealing with a portfolio manager Now, not every advisor is granted this portfolio manager status. It requires extra educational content, a review of the investment philosophy of the portfolio manager with regulators, and much more additional screening. So, Greg, this is the question, portfolio manager versus investment advisor. So, commonly used as synonyms, I mean, as we just talked about, they're not the same thing. They're similar, but not the same. So, the things that differ a portfolio manager from an investment advisor kind of fall into four critical areas. Fiduciary duty, which we just talked about, fees and payments, education and experience, and discretionary management and personalized services. So let's talk about fiduciary duty again. So I won't get too much into it because we just spent some time on it, but it's just that we have to act within the client's best interest. We have to put the client's interest first. It's just stated fact. Whereas the investment advisor really has no defined fiduciary duty to the client. They're licensed as a salesperson. So from education and experience, well, the regulators 
Standards require that portfolio managers meet rigorous experience and educational standards simply to be allowed to operate in the province that they are licensed in that capacity. So as I said, as an investment advisor, you're only required to be registered as a salesperson with the regulators. That's a huge difference. Massive difference. That's right. Exactly. Provincial securities commissions regulate portfolio managers and the firms they represent require that all managers receive formal training and certification from recognized securities institutes. Basically, to serve as a portfolio manager, you kind of have to have things like analytical skills, communication skills, expert knowledge of the markets, and be recognized for that work. So according to the Canadian Securities Institute, a prospective portfolio manager must have kind of three things. They have to have industry experience, a lengthy amount of industry experience. They have to have a proven track record. They have to have a clean track record, so they can't have like blemishes on their record. And if anybody's ever curious, you can always look up your advisor. Where do they look that up? That's on the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization, IROC. I-I-R-O-C. I-I-R-O-C. It's on their website. And it's I think it's under like a find an advisor kind of menu item. I mean, you could look up us. You could, if anybody was interested, look up Greg Kraminsky and see what comes up. Is there anything there, Greg, that we oh, should know? Oh, I better go check that first. <laughs> no, I think we're safe. <laughs> Anyways, the last part that the Securities Institute says is that you also have to have a track record of managing multi-million dollar portfolios on a discretionary basis. Well, and that's one of the things too. When you look at people that are quite new to the industry, investment advisors, or advisors that just come into the industry, they will not be able to be licensed as portfolio managers or discretionary portfolio managers until they've achieved that more experience, more years in the business dealing with larger clients with higher net worth. Yeah. So if you think about it from other fields, Greg, I guess let's talk about the medical community. You go to your GP or general practitioner for, I don't know, because you got something that's going on. It's not like that person does your hip replacement they end up sending you to a hip and knee specialist who has extra training and can do that type of procedure. Exactly. Isn't it kind of the same thing? What is it? Just talks to experience and expertise in a particular field. And portfolio managers have just demonstrated that track record of dealing with many clients, larger accounts, and again, managing it in a way that is only in the client's best interest and avoids any conflict of interest. Now, Greg, am I recommending the CM group as portfolio managers for the listeners out there? Why not? Of course I am. We do an excellent <laughs> job. If you're not dealing with us, you should seriously think about it. Anyways, let's get back to item number three, fees and payments. So the legal structure governing portfolio managers ensures there's no conflicts of interest because we have to operate in a fee-only service where we're paid a percentage of the assets that we manage. There's no fees, trailers, or commissions from any other source. So the client's interests are always put forward. There's no additional charge. That's right. And there's no way for a portfolio manager to earn any more money than has already been agreed to under the terms of the accounts. Now, let's contrast that to investment advisors. And I'm not being hard on investment advisors. I'm just stating the facts. There's There's just differences. Just differences. Investment advisors, when recommending a product, well, some might talk about the benefits rather than the full view of the client's financial picture. So in other words, they might focus on one aspect versus does it really fit with that person? There are some out there that might focus on the fees. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about those things in public, but they're true. It's just like any other vocation. There are 
like my example of taking my car in for service. Yeah. Well, there are times where I'm like, I'm paying way too much for this oil change. Yes. And did I really need to get that whatever procedure done? I think the critical thing is, regardless of whether you're a portfolio manager or an investment advisor, it's the full transparency of fees that's so important. For example, when a client buys a new issue, there may be a commission earned by the salesperson that the client might not even be aware of. It may not be a bad investment. It's just important to know that, oh, there is a commission payable, even though it's maybe not coming out of the client's own pocket. But it's important to know. And that's why our regulatory organizations have moved to much greater transparency of fees and expenses, which now everybody on their December statement every year can see exactly what fees have been earned by their advisor or their portfolio manager over the course of the year. And fees are a really important part of return. The less you pay, the more you keep. So if you're dealing with somebody that's afraid to talk about fees, then maybe you should think about who you're dealing with. So item number four, personalized services and discretionary management. So what sets the portfolio manager apart from the investment advisor and other financial professionals is the rigorous process they've taken to understand things like, I don't know, clients' financial needs, goals, what's important to them, what requires planning, money, and time, and fit that into their risk tolerance through their asset allocation and security selection. And there is a huge rigorous process to that. And it should never be led with product. It should be led first with what do you want to accomplish and then finding the product later that fits into those goals. So since portfolio managers don't receive commissions, they're not compelled to overtrade a client's account to boost their earnings, which does happen in other situations. It can. It can. Basically, again, is just putting the client's needs first. And of course, we're covered under the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. So back to your earlier points. So let's sort of wrap up this part here that, like I said, I'm not trying to be hard on investment advisors versus portfolio managers. It's just a different arena. Well, we ourselves are investment advisors as well as portfolio managers. Right. And part of that speaks to the nature of the relationships with the clients. And not all of our clients are in discretionary accounts, which means that we have the discretion to make the investments without consulting them on every single trade. And so we have to work in both capacities. However, as portfolio managers, that fiduciary duty is extended to all of our clients, regardless of the nature of the relationship. Yeah. So investment advisor spelled with ER or OR, who cares? You're dealing with a portfolio manager that is a fiduciary. Well, listen, those are kind of the main differences in and maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but portfolio manager versus investment advisor. But if, again, if anybody ever wants to talk about that stuff, we're happy to talk about it. But let's wrap up here with our fun part, Greg. Tell me, what are you watching or reading these days? Well, I'm still reading the book I started a year ago, so I guess I really shouldn't say I'm reading it anymore. (laughs) The evening and the morning, it's a big one. But I am, and I noticed that you're watching the same show I'm watching right now, which is called Manifest. Well, or manifest. <laughs> manifest. Yeah. I got to tell you, I started Manifest and I was about three episodes in. My daughter walked in the living room and said, what are you watching? I said, I'm watching this show called Manifest. And she sat down and started watching a few minutes. And she said, I think I'd like this series. So I offered to re-watch the first two episodes with her. What a great dad. So now we're on episode five together. Right. Okay. My wife walks in the room. What are you guys watching? Manifest. I see where this is going. So now I'm re-watching the first five episodes with her. You're a better man than I. 
And my daughter's left us in the dust. She's just like, I don't know. Are there multiple seasons to this? I'm not actually sure. I think we're at about the same point, but it's a very interesting concept, a little sci-fi-ish, I guess, sort of, or Outer Limits, or... Well, it's like Lost. It's like the show Lost. A little little bit bit like Lost. That's right. Anyway, that's a good one. And now that we're reaching the end of Netflix, it's probably a good (laughs) thing that we're reaching the end of COVID (laughs) because soon there won't be anything to do. That's right. So might as well get outside, enjoy the good weather, play some golf, tennis, whatever floats your boat. Right on. Okay. Well, well, that wraps it up. That was our discussion on how are you, the investor, protected against a variety of different potential issues. Next time, we'll move on to something different. Exactly. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.